Well, good morning, everyone. And it's uh, six days shopping left to Christmas. It's come upon us, hasn't it? Welcome uh, for those of you watching online and down in uh, F3 as well. Glad you could join us. Um, we've been studying through the book of Acts here this, uh, this fall. We're going to take a little break from the book of Acts for the next couple of weeks. Uh, we have focused on um, that beloved verse that everybody knows, John 3.16, over the last uh, number of weeks in our worship focus, as we, begin, uh, we did today uh, with Joel and Rachel McManigal from Thailand sharing with us. Uh, so I'm, I want to just take a, a few moments. I'm not going to tell you probably anything you don't already know about John 3.16. Uh, but it, I, it, I think it was maybe on the heart and mind of the angels when they announced to the shepherds. It said in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. Good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. Now, I think that that's what John 3.16 is all about. God, here's the great news of great joy. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Good news of great joy for all the people. There it is, John 3.16. So simple that a child can understand it. So profound that volumes have been written about this verse. Martin Luther, great reformer, said "It it is the heart of the Bible. It's the gospel in miniature. John 3.16. So let's unpack it just a little bit, shall we, this morning? And we'll talk a little bit about it next week as well on Christmas morning. First of all, this verse tells us about the essence or the author of love. God so loved the world. The author of love. Now, John, uh, 1 John, we read this verse in the Gospel of John, but the same author put it this way in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Why? Well, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. It defines who he is. This morning, there's a God in heaven, and he's defined by the fact that he loves. He loves. I I always think about the passage when Moses asked God, show me your glory. I want to know you. I, I want to... I want to get a sense of who you are. And God says, well, you, you can't see my glory. No one does and lives. But here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll, I'll pass by you, and you can see kind of the backside of my glory. And so that happened. Moses is hidden in the rock. The glory of the Lord passes, and Mo- Moses is able to see just a little glimpse of it. But as he's seeing the glimpse of that glory of God, God announces himself as the God who is full of compassion, loving kindness for all eternity. I am the God who loves. That's who I am. The everlasting God with everlasting love. 
That's what defines him. That's who he is. And it's all over the Bible. There's a whole book in the Old Testament devoted to the fact that God loves, which was difficult because the people he was saying he was loving were unlovable, the Jewish people. And the whole book of Hosea in the Old Testament is devoted to it. And they're rebelling against God. So what does God say in Hosea chapter 11, verse 8? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. Can you, see, can you see the heart of God? Here were these people who were rebellious. They were stiff-necked. They, were, they didn't want anything to do with God. How can I give you up, God says. All my compassions are kindled within me. Or Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31 puts it this way. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Why? Because that's the essence of God. He's the the author of it. it that's, that's what defines him. He is the God of love. The hymn writer F.M. Lehman wrote the, these words in this old gospel song, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies the parchments made? Were every stock on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above? would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though they were stretched from sky to sky. We cannot understand the depth of God's love, but that's who he is. That's what defines him. God so loved. That leads us to the second thing, the scope of God's love. God so loved the world, the world, the whole world, Lots of unlovely people in the world. Yet God so loved the world. Uh, some of you may struggle with that. Some of you may think that um, because of your past or whatever it might be. Have you talked with people, by the way, who, who have communicated that? God, God can't love me. Have you, talked, have you known people who have such a sordid past that they just can't believe God would love them. I remember talking with a, a guy who had one of those dark pasts and uh, grew up in a bit of a, a religious home, a, a, a legalistic home, a, a home of guilt and shame. And um, he said he was driving down a road one time and I don't know if it was a song that was on the radio or, some, or a verse that God brought to his remembrance. But it just hit him like a ton of brick. God loves me. I, I don't have to perform for his love. No matter what I do, he loves me. He had to pull the car off to the side of the road. Tears were coming in his eyes. It was the first time where he, it dawned on him, no matter what he does, no matter who he is, no matter what his past is, his present, or his future, it didn't change the fact that God loved him with an everlasting love, and it was a game changer for him. It totally changed the outlook of his life. There are people today who struggle with, God can't love me. And basically what happens is that, and we all do this, we, we understand God, we run God to the grid of our experiences in our life. 
oftentimes, by the way, how we were raised. And so God is shaped. My, my um, dear sister was a, a counselor for many years, uh, adolescence, um, um, private hospital, very sad situations. I remember years ago, I was a seminarian, and I was telling her, well, you, you just got to tell them that there's a God who loves them. And she looked at me and she says, do you realize, Mark, most of the kids in this hospital have been abused by their father? And you want me to tell them that God loves them? That the Father in heaven loves them? Look, there's such traumatic experiences, people growing up. And the thought that God loves them is just almost incomprehensible. And that's why we have to go to the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit has to inform us. God so loved the world. Now, just a quick note of caution. This same author, in his first epistle, uh, put it this way. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wait a minute, John. You just said in your gospel, God so loved the world. Now you're telling us not to love the world. What gives here? What's going on here? Well, the... the the Greek word for world is the word cosmos. It's, it means the order or the arrangement of things. It's where we get our word cosmetics. Uh, people use cosmetics to try to orderly arrange things, I guess. But um, um, there is, like any term, you have to understand it right in its context. If I, if I, if I, met, I, I let me throw out a word to you. Trunk, T-R-U-N-K, trunk. What comes in your mind? Tree trunk, it could be a car, a trunk of a car, an, an elephant trunk, a trunk, an old trunk in the attic that you put clothes in. Trunk, the context determines the meaning, right? That's the same thing in Bible study. Cosmos, world. What, what is the context when God so loved that world and the context of his later epistle where we are not to love that world? Well, there's kind of two categories here. The first category is that world that God has ordained, that God has created, that has the, you could say, the DNA of God all over it. Every, everyone born in this world is born in the image of God. God so loves the world of mankind. But there's another way that the word is used in, its, in a context in his first epistle, and that's the world of Satan. The God of this world, the God of this world who, is blind, who blinds the minds of the unbelieving, it says, who holds this world in the grip of his power. It's a worldly way of, um, of thinking. Satan works in the realm of our mind, of thoughts, of thinking. And that world that is controlled by Satan, God does not love. God is not love. It's under his control. It is the world that First John, he said, we know that the, we are of God, but that whole world, the world of Satan, lies in its power, the power of the evil one. Or, as John 4 put it this way, or James 4, do you not know that friendship with that world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's the cosmos of the worldly a philosophy of life that's infused and empowered by the God of this world, Satan. It's in the realm of the mind, the thinking, the worldview, the, the pervasive world thinking. Whatever man thinks, 
Satan can pervert it. It's a world system that we as believers are not to love and we are to avoid. It's, it's the way we perceive things. Like, for instance, um, the worldly thinking that uh, the one with the most toys wins. That uh, happiness is based on what I acquire. Uh, my status of wealth, the toys I have. And by the way, we're coming up to Christmas, right? And we've got little kids that are just looking at the presents, shaking them under their You don't touch that. Um, we've, we've got a little one-year-old grandson, and he's learned very well uh, the last few weeks. No, don't touch. So he pulls his little hand away. But here, Christmas Day, he will tear it apart. And, and, and so happiness, right, is based on what I get. Well, I have to be careful of that because that's the world way of thinking. The one with the most toys wins. Or there's no moral absolutes. I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt someone. That's the world way of thinking. Um, there's no tomorrow. For li- so, so live for today. Grab all the gusto you can in life. Because, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. Where does that come from? It's the world. It's infused by the power of Satan, the mentality of Satan. The highest good is the tolerance of opposing views. It's a worldly mindset. My identity comes by um, my IQ level, my educational level, the color of my skin, uh, the gender I want to be today. That's my identity. Where does that come from? It's the world system of thought, of thinking. And we are to be, to, to, to that world, we are to be separate from, purified from. Uh, don't be, as, as Paul said in, in, in Romans 12, don't be conformed to the world. And, and the word is not cosmos there, it's the word for age, but it's the same idea. Don't be conformed to the world's way of thinking. As one translation put it, don't be squeezed in to the world's way of thinking. Be separate from it. Uh, Be purified from it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that we can prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So to that world that we are not to love, we are to pull back from it. We are to guard against it. We are to run everything through the truth of God's word and measure what, what, what is the world way of thinking on this? And does it align with Scripture and God's way of thinking? And if it doesn't, we jettison, we run from that way. Do not love the world nor the things in this world. But to the world that God loves, we are to run to. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And that's the essence. That's the third thing we want to talk about, the essence of God's love. He gave. God is a giving God. So what does that tell us about a God who gives? What does it tell us about the character of a God who gives? He's a giving God. Well, I think it tells us a whole lot about God, but one thing it tells us about God is that he is not detached. He is not separate He is not so transcendently glorious that he's not imminently present and aware of us. He's a God who gives. So that means he's involved, he's he's aware of our needs. He's intimately acquainted with us. The psalmist 
Put it this way, in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have examined my heart. This is from the New Living Translation. You have examined my heart and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm afar, far away. You see me when I travel, when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me. You follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too great for me to understand. God knows all about us. He knows our need, and he knows us so intimately, he enters into our space, our world. He's a giving God. He gives us his love. He gives us his grace. Don't ever think, don't ever entertain the thought that God is somehow detached from our experiences of life. That God is somehow distant. He does not know what I'm going through. Because that's just a lie. Uh, you know, the old saying is, if you, you know, if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? Well, it's not God. He is intimately involved with us. He knows everything about us, and he moves into our realm, into our world, into our life. He is a giving God a God of grace. And what does he give? He gave his son. And that's the cost of God's love. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now that word, only begotten, is a word that has stumbled people sometimes over the centuries of time. It implies, um, or it seems it would imply, you would think, that he had a beginning. He is a begotten God. Uh, my translation, the New American Standard that I usually use, or um, I think King James does it and translates it, only begotten. Some of your other translations are probably a little better, I think, and that word translated is the idea of the one and only, the unique, the, the one and only Son of God. He is a one of a kind. He's in a league of his own. There's no one like him. You know, think of the Old Testament. By the way, Jesus is sharing this with whom? Nicodemus. He was a teacher of the law. And we're going to talk about next uh, Sunday a little bit on Christmas morning, Nicodemus. But Nicodemus was steeped in the, in the, in the scriptures, the Old Testament law. And you see throughout the Old Testament um, the um, references at times to the sons of God. Like there were many sons of God. Job talks about the sons of God rejoiced. They shouted for joy at the creation when God created. You see Genesis chapter 6, the, an evil part of that, the sons of God saw the daughters of men and they came down from their domain and they cohabitated with the daughters of men, the sons of God. So the Old Testament talks about the sons of God. Nicodemus would have been fully aware that there were multiple sons of God listed uh, in that unseen realm. Um, and so he writes and he says, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only, his unique son, the one who is in a league all, all by himself. There is no one like him. He's not the typical rabbi. He's not the typical teacher. He is the only begotten, unique Son of God. He tells us, I'm here on earth, 
as a result of my Father's love, and I'm here as the unique, one-of-a-kind, only Son of God. Um, and He was given to us. Jesus stepped down from His throne of glory, and He gave Himself for us. It was costly. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. God sent his son, or a little bit later in verse 32 of Romans 8, he, did not, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He delivered him up for us all. We read this passage in Acts chapter 2 just a few weeks ago. This man was delivered, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men. You put him to death. Um, God sent him into the world. God delivered him. Uh, he was given as a gift to us because God loved this world. God sees the fallenness of humanity, the mess that we have made out of life, of his perfect creation, and he goes to his son who lived in perfect harmony, the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead who had said at the creation, let's make man in our image after our likeness. And man was created after the likeness of God. Three distinct persons, yet one God. Male and female, he created them. And God sees the fallenness, the despair, the hopelessness of his creation. Heading headlong to de eternal destruction. Separated from his holiness for all of eternity. And he says to his son, arise from your throne and go to the cross. He sent his son. He delivered him to us. He did not spare him, but he delivered him up for us all. Go into the world. Be born in, into that dark, be um, uh, placed in that dark womb of that young virgin wo woman and be born into a world of sin, of rebellion, of hatred, of war, of oppression, and pay for the penalty of their sins. And God delivered him. Oh, yeah, no question, Judas delivered Jesus to the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And the religious leaders of Judaism delivered Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate delivered Jesus to the Roman executioners. But behind it all, it was a God who loved this world, who delivered his son. He sent him. He delivered him. He didn't spare him. He gave his only begotten son out of infinite love for mankind. What an amazing thought. He gave and it cost him. What are the benefits of God's love? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The benefits. John would write again in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, by this the love of God has manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world 
so that we might live through him. What's the benefit of the, of the love of God as he sent his son into our world? What's the benefit of it? Life. Every one of us are born in this world, are born dead, spiritually dead. Oh, we may be spanked and we cry our little heads off when we're born, but we are spiritually separated from God, and the Bible says that is death. We're separated from the life of God. And so his son came into this world, and he paid for our sins. He died on the cross, and he gives us the free gift of eternal life that we can enjoy now, as well as when we wait and get it one day uh, when we die. But we can possess eternal life now. We studied uh, last week, I think it was in, in uh, Acts chapter 5, of uh, the apostles were put in, in jail, and that mysterious, miraculous jailbreak when the angel got them out of jail and then commissions them and says, go out there into the streets and preach everything about this life. She said, I came to give you life and to give it more abundantly. If you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, folks, you've been raised up to newness of life. I mean, everything has changed. We're all we're new crea creations in Christ. Once spiritually dead, now alive in him. Okay, we might not feel like it, and there's times you don't look like it, but the reality is that is what defines us. We have been given life. Everything that God has intended when he created us has now been renewed to us in the moment of life. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, he doesn't ask us to work for it or earn it. That's why it's called grace, unmerited favor. He gives it as a gift. Whoever believes in him is not defined by death and will never perish, but has, in the present moment, eternal life. It's what we possess the moment we trust Christ as our Savior. Folks, um, we, that's what discipleship, by the way, is all about. We've got to learn what that means. Sometimes we have to tell our face that. <laughs> we, we, we have been brought to newness of life in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Um, the Bible is very clear. Eternal life is offered as a free gift. This is what he said in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Well, you mean, you mean I get that new car? <laughs> no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about life. He's talking about a, a quality of living that is marked by love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness, where life is full of meaning and purpose. That no matter what happens in our life, even while tears may be coming down our cheek, we are filled with hope and joy in the innermost being. That's life. We're experiencing life. It says in Ephesians 1.3, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. It says in 2 Peter, he's given us everything we need for life and godless. And again, I think this is what Discipleship. Our mission statement is to prepare and deploy dependent disciples 
who changed their world for Christ as they're being changed by him. Folks, we don't become change agents in this world if we're walking around like we're still, die, still in death. But if we know who we really are in Christ, and that's what discipleship should be in a church, is help each other understand all that happened when Christ died on the cross and when that was applied to our life. That's what we want to do here at Fellowship Bible Church. We want, we want all of us to look a little bit more like Jesus at the end of this year than at the beginning of the year. We, we want to experience life. And it doesn't mean that everything goes wonderfully. I heard of three situations this week of, of death of, of family members of members of our church. Two of them in their 30s, one in their 90s. Now, folks, that is not fun and it's not pleasant. But I'm here, and you know this if you know Jesus, if you walked with him for any length of time, in the midst of the sorrow and the sadness, you can experience life. Because we are born-again believers in Jesus Christ. That's what he came to give us. I came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. And that's what discipleship should be. That's what we ought to be doing at this church. Now, it's nice to have even Bible studies and activities and Christmas programs and all that. But, man, we have got to connect with one another. You've got to get involved in a small group, and you've got to be talking to one another, encouraging one another about this life. And then we've got to go out and preach it. Go out into the street and tell the world about this life. Because there's a God in heaven who so loved the world, he did the unthinkable. He gave his one and only unique, in a league of his own, he asked his son to step from the throne of glory and come into our world and be perfect humanity and experience everything that we would ever experience, be tempted in all things as we are. Go into their world, that world I created, that you created, my son, and take their sin upon them and you die in their place so that we can have a relationship with them. Why would you do that? The angels watching probably thinking, why would you do that, God? Because I love them. I love them. And Jesus stepped from the throne of glory. It was love that did that. And he took our sin upon himself and he died in our place. It was love that did that. And he gave us life. And he wants us to experience it in all its fullness. It's real. His pardon of our sin is real. And folks, it just has to be accepted. It just has to be believed. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he's not asking you to be religious. He's not asking you to walk an aisle, to say a prayer, to give money to the poor, to attempt to obey the Ten Commandments so that at the end of your life, you'll, your good works will be weighed against your bad works and he'll see if you deserve heaven. That's not how it works. That's how world religions work. That's not how God operates. He offers a free gift. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him have you received the free gift by faith? What does that look like? It simply says, like you're going to be doing at Christmas time. You're going to receive the gift that someone has given you. You're going to thank him for it. You simply reach out and take it. God is offering you today a free gift, the gift of life. 
the forgiveness of our sins, a home in heaven for all of eternity, and much, much, much more fabulous spiritual wealth, a new identity. And it can be ours when we simply reach out and accept it by faith. We say, thank you, God, for doing that for me. I don't deserve it. I'm a sinner. But you love me. I can't fathom that. I will accept it because your word says it. And I receive it. Thank you. And in that moment of thanks that expresses that faith, the Bible says you become born again. You are new. And he enters our life. Our sins are forgiven. And we have eternal life from that moment on for all of eternity. And he'll never take it back. Why? Because he loves us. Go home and ponder that this week. Because that's really what Christmas is about. God loves you. Boy, did the angels ever peg it right. Talking to the angels, or the shepherds that night. That angel had it right. I bring you glad tidings of great joy. God loves you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be reminded of a verse that has changed lives for two millennia. A wonderful truth that we can so oftentimes take for granted, Lord, um, that you love us. You loved us so much you gave your son. You loved us so much you demand nothing from us but simply to believe this message. And when we believe it, you give us life abundantly. And I pray, Father, that for all of us who know you as our Savior, we will more and more increasingly understand the depth of that truth and then live in light of it. Father, thank you for this season that reminds us of this great love. And may that inform our gatherings this week and this next week. And may it just fill us with such delight. May it dispel any fears we have that we are unlovable. And may we share it with others. May it, may it, may it flow out of us. May your love flow from us to others so that we can help others understand how much they are loved by their creator. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.